This is the stark reality for many in Beirut. Rolling power cuts. Some last up to 23 hours. There's a worldwide energy crunch, and odds are it's going to find you, whether you're in the Middle East or the Far East. China's northeast suffering some of the country's worst power cuts. China's power crunch is threatening to put its economy and global supply chains into a tailspin. The West is feeling it too. Gas and power prices in Europe have just keep surging. UK has issues, Italy has issues, Germany, their energy for businesses is up hundreds of percent year over year, and this may be coming to a state near you. All around the world, supplies of energy cannot keep up with soaring demand. That means higher energy prices. And if that weren't bad enough... Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Well, not the one from Game of Thrones. But more expensive natural gas, oil, and other fossil fuels mean staying warm this winter will cost consumers a lot more money. The shortage is also promising higher heating bills for the coming winter. So what triggered this energy crisis? Who will it hurt the most? And how could the fossil fuel crunch impact the climate crisis? I'm Patricia Sabga, in from Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Henning Gloystein. I'm a director for energy, uh, climate and natural resources at Eurasia Group based in London, UK. To get a grip on this global energy crunch, we turn to Henning Goldstein. He's an energy expert and he knows a lot about global climate change plans, too. Those two things are deeply intertwined. But first, how did the world end up in the throes of an energy crunch? I mean, what are the main drivers of this crisis? It really is a bit of a perfect storm. You have to remember exactly a year ago, most of the Northern Hemisphere, so North America, Europe, they were in a lockdown or about to go back into a lockdown and they were in an economic recession. This time, right now, we're not in lockdowns and most economies, especially the US, the EU and China, have injected stimulus money. The governments have put money into the economy to, to stimulate demand. So the demand situation for energy is just much bigger. At the same time, a lot of production of coal and natural gas and oil is lower than it was last year. The uh, oil producers are still not producing a capacity and many gas and coal producers like Indonesia and Malaysia, they have been hit by severe COVID outbreaks themselves. So their production is lower and put that in together. And we're in a bit of a pickle at the moment and it's not even cold yet. And in the next few months, energy demand in the Northern Hemisphere, where it gets cold, will probably rise by 20 to 30 percent. So um, things could get pretty uh, tricky. Like Henning said, it's not even that cold yet, but people are already seeing higher energy bills. Over in Europe, consumers in Spain, Portugal and Italy are already shelling out more to keep the lights on. Donato Calandriello is one of them. He owns a small pasta company in the south of Italy, in a town called Sassano. Since the beginning of June, we're undergoing small increases in electricity. It's not just power. Donato is also paying more for all the raw materials he needs to produce his pasta. And those cost increases have a domino effect on his customers. 
Especially since August, the raw materials have risen more and more. At this point, we're barely recovering our investments with most of our customers. We even had to slightly increase the cost of our fresh pasta products. I'm very worried about the soaring prices. I hope it doesn't get worse. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, people in Lebanon are not only being plunged into darkness most of the time, they can barely afford gasoline. People like Talal. He's a gas station attendant and a student in the capital, Beirut. He drives a motorcycle. Before, I would be able to fully top it up at 20,000 or 30,000 Lebanese pounds. Now, it would cost 200,000 or 250,000 pounds. To be honest, the situation has become severe for many people who earn 1 million or 1.5 million Lebanese pounds. They're spending three quarters of their salary on their fuel just to go to and from work. The situation here is horrible. So uh, winter is coming, and for some countries, it's already getting tricky. Which countries have been the hardest hit so far? Interestingly, so far, it's actually been China. China is the country that probably came through this pandemic best of all major economies. They controlled their industry and economy recovered well. But now they've been hit really hard. They have been hit by this coal and gas supply shortage. They've also had domestic production and the politics got in the way as well. They boycott Australian coal imports at the moment, which has added to the trouble. And in the gas industry, they are moving dozens of millions of households every year from using coal to heating gas in winter. So now their gas demand goes through the roof and that is felt everywhere. So their industry has already been asked to reduce output and there have been blackouts in some areas of China. So let's talk about how this is being felt at the consumer level. How are ordinary people feeling the effects of the global energy crunch? That's a very good point to make. In fact, the the people who feel this most are the people in not wealthy countries, in developing economies, poor countries. If households in in wealthy countries have to pay a little bit more, $10 more per month for their fuel in a car or for their food, that's annoying, but it's not a huge problem. If you're in, in, in a country and your disposable income isn't very high, every dollar counts. And if your energy bill at home rises by 20%, your fuel pump price for your car rises by 30%, and your food prices have risen as well because of um, the supply chain problems, then suddenly uh, your entire income and your wealth is um, at threat. And economists call this demand destructions. People just stop consuming. But real people call this, you know, this is people sliding into poverty. As the cost of energy goes up, Lower-income households around the world are likely looking at some tough choices this winter. Staying warm or paying the rent. Staying warm or putting food on the table. My name is Justin Chad. I'm project manager with the Energy Equity Project, and that was started at the Urban Energy Justice Lab at University of Michigan. The Energy Equity Project is working to ensure that BIPOC communities, that's Black, Indigenous, and people of color, benefit as much from the green energy transition as wealthier, wider communities. That starts with creating a framework for measuring current energy inequalities in the United States, the world's largest economy. So BIPOC households have 
much higher energy burdens than their white counterparts. And this is for a number of reasons. It's a lot of the effects of redlining, of housing discrimination and substandard housing that have been carried over for decades. And with the work that I've done in Detroit, I've been out to over 100 homes, doing home energy saving visits, looking inside, uh, working with residents to see how they could bring down their bills. And just some of the basic inefficiencies that are there are really stunning. It feels uh, what you might expect to see in a developing country, very sadly. So people that have been living with a furnace that hasn't been working for years, people missing windows or with major holes in their roofs, and there's not generally funding for home repair that's needed. Justin says the headline numbers actually fail to capture the disproportionate fallout of higher energy prices on BIPOC and low-income households. You know, if you just look at the energy burden, say, in a county or a state, it's not going to show those spikes that we see in BIPOC communities and low-income communities. We see in Detroit energy burdens often exceeding 15 percent. So you can imagine if the average energy bill in the city is something like 3000 a year, somebody is living on a fixed income of $20,000, that's about 15 percent right there. Sometimes it's as extreme as 30 percent. And many spend years trying to pay off those electric bills. I'm Stephanie Johnson, and I live in Detroit, Michigan. Stephanie told us she's been under a payment plan with DTE, the electric company in Detroit, since 2007. That's nearly a decade and a half. I was going to college full-time, and I was working part-time, and the heat bill was just really high. And so DTE cut off my uh, power two or three times during the beginning of college. So what I did was I took out the maximum amount of student loans that I could so that I could pay down the DTE bill. Stephanie says she doesn't know why she hasn't been able to pay off her electric power debt, but it never seems to go down. I think that there should be more transparency on energy usage. Stephanie's case isn't unique, which is why one of Justin's primary focuses with the Energy Equity Project is to help people with cases like hers. If we're looking at the number of households that are energy insecure, that's about a third of Americans. So this is either people reporting that they're foregoing some other basic need to pay their energy bill, like they're not going to their doctor's appointments, they're skimping on healthy food, people that are getting a shutoff notice, people that are keeping their homes at an unsafe temperature, not using their heat in the winter or their air conditioning, or people that have actually been shut off. And we know that really disproportionately affects black and brown households, about 50% of those face energy insecurity in a given year. So that number is really just stunning to me. Politicians are getting worried about consumers and how much they are and will suffer because of the energy crunch. European countries recently got together to tackle the issue of electricity market reform, but nothing came of those talks. So we asked Henning Gloystein from Eurasia Group what kind of political risks are being fueled by the energy crisis. The problem is we're sort of at the mercy of the weather right now, which is um, really not a good situation for politicians to be in because they can't control it. But so if in, let's say, in Europe or in China, it stays mild until around the end of the year, then this will be a short scare and high prices, but this will blow over pretty fast. If, however, it gets cold in one or more regions and it stays cold for a while, this becomes a problem. The industry will stop growing, but households are the ones will be hit hardest. 
And then it does become a political problem. Britain is a good example. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been very popular despite all the problems around Brexit. But if people start running out of electricity, they can't pay it, or there's actually blackouts in another COVID wave, that really bites uh, any politician. India, sadly, is at risk as well. And of course, India was hit really hard by COVID and already had an economic slowdown before the pandemic. And um, this energy crisis is not making it easier for India either. So there's real economic risks then. I mean, you talk about demand destruction. When demand goes down, economies slow down. And certainly when you idle factories, that also marks a slowdown. How much is this going to impact the economic recoveries from COVID? Significantly. So this is actually almost the best case scenario that it's only an economic impact and it doesn't come to widespread outages in winter across major economies. But the minimum damage is probably already done and that is an economic damage. Even if there's no outages, the, the energy prices, retail and wholesale, so at home and for industries, have gone up significantly and they will not come down easily. This will last through winter. So it's the last few months of this year and it's the first couple of months of next year. That means it's half a year already. Uh, and that will take a while to recover from. And that means the economic outlook for the next six months is not great. When you're talking about a crisis, there are always winners and there are always losers. So let's start with the winners. Which countries stand to benefit from the global energy crunch? Well, I mean, sure. I mean, look at uh, the countries that export a lot of oil, coal and LNG that haven't been hit by outages. LNG, that's liquefied natural gas that's used for everyday heating, cooking and basic electricity. So Australia, along with Qatar now, they are the world's biggest LNG exporter. And so the record prices there is a boon for them. They're also still a big coal exporter. Great. And of course, Russia is selling a lot of gas at very high prices in this environment. But we shouldn't totally forget the United States here. The U.S. is now a significant oil exporter, an LNG exporter as well. And you can, there's a few other countries, Malaysia, Norway. Yeah, sure. I mean, sell a lot of oil, gas and coal. It's, it's, these are good days for you. Just to focus in a little bit more on Russia, besides the windfall from the global energy crunch, how else could Russia benefit from this? Because Europe needs more natural gas and Russia has a lot of it. They do indeed. So Russia, of course, at the moment, short term looks pretty strong in this. I would caution over that, though, because they need that new pipeline, Nord Stream 2, that is finished. It goes um, directly through the Baltic Sea into Germany and hence into the EU. And that bypasses Ukraine. And that is what Russia wants. They don't want to send their gas through Ukraine anymore. That's their political enemy. So they want to send it directly into Europe. And they are telling Europe, we have the gas, so please approve that pipeline. European Union is very skeptical about approving it. They will probably approve it because they want the pipeline as well, but they don't want to be held hostage. And if they see or feel that they are being played with by Russia, this will only accelerate a transition away from fossil fuels. It's also worth mentioning that Russia exports a lot of gas to China uh, through a big pipeline, but they have fallen behind in expectations. And China doesn't say this very loudly, but they're very unhappy. We have world leaders gathering in Glasgow at the end of the month for COP26 to discuss the climate crisis and efforts to accelerate the green energy transition. And right now, of course, there's a rush for fossil fuels. So how could this current energy crunch impact green energy plans? So the countries that are already engaged in the green transition, so the EU, uh, Canada, Japan, China, they will use this to 
try and double down on the green transition. What they say is that we currently have a price spike in fossil fuels, so natural gas, coal, but also oil. We have supply disruption of fossil fuels, which is causing us trouble. Uh, and these high prices are feeding into high industry and household electricity prices. And that means um, we need to invest into clean domestic energy sources to protect ourselves from um, that sort of uh, price spike and disruption. But of course, that is a long-term plan and that doesn't solve any of these winter problems. So there will be immediate measures that all these governments will try and find and that will include protecting household costs and trying to find a little bit more natural gas and coal. So one thing that a lot of analysts have cited as one of the reasons for the global energy crunch is they're, they're cautioning that there hasn't been enough investment in fossil fuels. And this is why we're at this current point. What do you think of those arguments? I mean, do we need to invest more in fossil fuel production in order to avoid these sort of painful distortions like we're seeing now with the global energy crunch? Do those arguments have merit? So there has been a shortfall in investment in the energy sector. The problems are more into uh, storage and transmission. Most uh, countries, including very wealthy ones, have not invested enough into energy storage. So natural gas storage facilities. Britain has a shortfall of this. China has one. They haven't invested enough into power grids so that they can handle the surge in renewable power capacity and that there's backup for when there's no renewables. So unwindy days or cloudy days or at nighttime. And this has caused uh, power problems before. Keep in mind, there was a, a power outage in Texas earlier this year. Australia experienced lots of power outages over the last few years for the same reasons as Europe and China are now. So this is where the big investment need is. So the pain that consumers are feeling and are likely to feel is really undeniable. But is there a silver lining in this crisis for the planet? Yeah, the glass is half full. So first things first, we don't think the situation this time next year will be as bad again. Hopefully there'll be less COVID, so the disruption from there will be less. There is actually more oil and gas production on its way. And there's a lot of new renewable capacity being built across Europe, North America, China. So there is more energy on its way. And most governments hopefully learn from the mess that, that is being uh, created this winter. And we know what backup solutions um, we need and they will work. Uh, we just need to invest into them. And it's worth keeping in mind that any of these solutions, they are technologies. And that means they get better the more we use them and the more people use them. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliayi, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Patricia Sabka, in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Aya Almalike is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. Special thanks to Antonieta Calandriero, Rafael Mojica, Michelle Jones, Juan Shannon, and Karim Shahayeb. Malika Bilal will be back this Friday.